This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Nothing can replace the pleasure of turning the pages of the printed book. Join us now as we explore our city's rich literary heritage, talking with people who are passionate about the printed word and celebrating the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute's fascinating local history. Welcome to Wireless Books. Welcome everyone and welcome Christine back to another edition of Wireless Books from the Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, Dunedin's oldest institution and a library. And we are broadcasting from the very central um, high up studios of Otago Access Radio. Yes we are and... On Monday, where the library opens from our ah, very relaxing Christmas <laughs> New Year's break, we return with a spring on our step, hopefully. <laughs> so maybe we'll see you there. Now, I'm going to start with this book, which um, won an Acorn Prize for Fiction, or was a finalist in the Ockham Book Awards, and it's Better the Blood by Michael Bennett. And one member asked me if I could buy it, and she's a member I find hard to resist. So, Well, <laughs> music to my ears. I have to say I'm very grateful that as a librarian you listen to the members, and I did ask you if you could buy that, New Zealand author as well, and you said, I'll see what I can do. And look what you can do. You're a magician. Exactly. Now, it's... It's about, set in Auckland and it's a, it has a Detective Senior Sergeant Hannah Westerman who is a Māori um, detective and she's she's raising her child alone and she's got a very difficult career in um, the Sixth and Auckland Central Investigation Branch and she receives a video which leads her to a crime scene. So... She gets this video and she uses the clues in the video to find a man hanging in a hidden room. And so she thinks that the video was sent by the killer and so she's got to dance a dance with the killer. Well, and it kind of seems like possibly that he might, he or she might have a personal vendetta against her and her family. So it's pretty, pretty exciting. And that's Better the Blood by Michael Bennett. And uh, it's got a a thing on the front, a compelling atmospheric page turner, Val McDermott. Well, if Val gives it the stamp of approval, you're mm-hmm. you're going to go for Lovely. it. Lovely. Now I've got another blood site um, saga, but this is actually a true crime. It's the Crew Murders inside New Zealand's most infamous cold case. And it's by two journalists, Kirsty Johnson and James Hollands. And this, most there have been countless books written about the crew case. And mostly, oh well, actually, until now, they've all been with people who think that they know who did it. And so they're all, um, subconsciously or not, um, they all massage the facts to fit their own um, conclusion. Mm, mm. And this... These people are trying to be, um, what's the word? They, they're, Objective? That's the one. Oh, Thank you. It just, it just slipped right out, dribbled down my ears. <laughs> and so what they do is 
is an historic account of of the murders and the investigation and then, of course, um, the conviction of Arthur Allen Thomas and the efforts of people to free him and the two court cases and his eventual um, public pardon. Oh, no, many, many years. Well, the murders happened in 1970 and I remember them, but I was a child and they kind of linked in my mind with the um, the Mona Blades case as well because they both were seemed to be about the same time, and of course I I was too I knew about them but I didn't know much information. Well, no, and I have written I have sorry I have read books about it. I I read Beyond Reasonable Doubt by David Yelich, which was the very famous book by a an English author, and then I saw the movie Beyond Reasonable Doubt, which was a very good film one of the very first New Zealand um, films that um, made an impression on our box office. But um, this brought up a lot of things about the case that I knew nothing about. For example, the cruise, there was a burglary at their house and Jeanette's um, um, jewellery was stolen and only her good jewellery and there was cash in the house and the people ignored that. And then the hay barn burnt down, and then their house actually was set alight when she was in hospital giving birth to Rochelle the baby. And yes, and so that that house had to be rebuilt before they could. And she had this, Jeanette had this feeling that she was being watched, they were being watched at night, and she felt very nervous and unsettled. And apparently, she used to take the baby and go out on the farm with Harvey. She didn't like to be alone in the house. So it was that sort of things like I never knew any of that. And it is, it makes her more of a real person. It's, um, yes, this is a very good book, but a very sad book. But um, very, very well written, and I think a lot of people will be very interested in it because, of course, the murders still hold a fascination to us. It's still unsolved, isn't it? Yes, definitely. Rochelle, the the woman who was the baby left behind, um, she actually asked the police to go and do a cold case investigation of all the evidence that was left. Because, of course, the police destroyed a lot of evidence. And they um, came. To, they issued a report where they apologised to Rochelle, and se- because of course her her grandfather was one of the people accused of doing the murder, and they said that he definitely didn't. And although they said that Arthur Allen Thomas probably didn't, they didn't apologise to him and left it very much up in the air. So the police still still mm. will not back down. Really? Yeah. Now, I've got um, the latest Sebastian Fawkes called The Seventh Son. And this is a story, it starts in 2030, so it's a little bit in the future. And it's about um, people, so scientists um, playing around on the boundaries of ethics. And they get um, some, I can never say it, the Neanderthal. Um, Neanderthal? Yes. Ne- yeah. I don't know why I can't pronounce that word. But they get the DNA and they artificially inseminate a woman who is having a baby for a childless couple. And the child, Seth, the baby, is delivered. And he, he's an Neanderthal. Neanderthal? Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, 
and he he grows up as a basically a normal child. He doesn't seem any different. He's maybe a little bit slower, but he he's in a oh, I say an upper middle class family in America. He goes he goes to college. He gets a degree. He seems to be coping all right. But then the fact of his um, heritage um, comes out, and he becomes a media sensation. Mm. So it's sort of oh um, boy. Yes, exactly. And um, Sebastian Folks actually, he got the idea because I think he was listening to a podcast or something from um, oh, my memory. The man who wrote, um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm hopeless. I can't. I know. I know who he is, but I can't think of his name. He's the guy who wrote. He's a biologist, and he wrote um, all those things about God that. He, disputing God and he did a premise what would happen if you could um, because humans um, interbred with the Neanderthal Neanderthal why can't I pronounce it (laughs) I've been been on holiday for too long and um, so obviously our DNA strands are compatible and most a lot of humans especially Europeans have at least 2% of Neanderthal Neanderthal DNA in our sequencing. I'm just wondering if this is a book I would. Um, well, he's a good writer, and if the idea appeals to you or intrigues you, why not? Now, I have the latest David Baldacci called The Edge, and it's features a guy, um, Travis Devine, who he apparently he already wrote a book about him, The 620 Man, but. Surprisingly, because we have about two shelves full of David Baldacci's, we don't seem to have it. I must have, I must have missed it when it came out, or for some reason. Oh, you're forgiven. Well, I'm going to have to search it out. And it's, he's actually going to be writing um, a series, and I think he's planning about eight books in the series about um, um, Travis Devine. And it, and the the kick is, or the 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 little quirk of it is that they all start with Travis on a on a, on a train. So the very first oh, one, he was okay. a commute on yep, a commuter yep. train. Mm. Um, then he was in the army. He was a part of a elite group, but he um, a special ops force. Then he retired, and he's now part of an elite undercover team in Homeland Security. And he's overseas doing some elite work, and he had, it starts with him having a big, a big fight in a train and, and killing some goons who are out to get him. But of course, he's he's too good for them. And he um, comes back to America, and he's sent off immediately to investigate a killing of a woman who was a high-ranking analysis for the CIA. And she has a lot of national security secrets, so he has to work out if it's just a killing or if it's something something more ominous. And um, well, that's David Baldacci, and um, yeah, yeah. If you like David Baldacci, you'll be um, hoovering that up, hoovering, <laughs> hoovering away. Now the next one is um, by David Boyne, best known as the man who wrote The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. But he's um, started writing adult novels, and this is called Water. And it opens with a woman who has um, 
gone to a remote island, and the first thing she does when she arrives on the island is change her name. So she ditches her married name and she goes by her middle name now. So she becomes, from Vanessa Craven, she becomes Willow Hale. And the next thing she does is she cuts her hair very short. And she is escaping something. She's, it's a scandal and people are blaming her. It's a scandal involving her husband, but people blame her and say that she must have known about it. And at the start of the book, we don't know. She feels guilty, but is she guilty or is she as guilty as other people think she is? I will tell you when mm. I've read it. And it's uh, actually going to be one of the book club groups next um, next year. So it got a very good review and... So it got snaffled up for the book. Of course it would. I mean, The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas is one of the greatest classics of all time. Is it? Yes, it certainly is, in my my family's opinion. Even the non-readers in my family picked up that book. Mm. It was tore them apart emotionally. Just so his writing is so powerful. Mm, I can't well, wait to read that. Yes, well in the, the new book. In the um, Athenaeum newsletter that I send out to the members, if you're not a member, you're missing out on a great piece of piece of writing. <laughs> Somebody actually wrote a review for um, a letter to the sky because the review for Water came out on national radio and it was a very glowing one, but the book wasn't in the shops yet, oh, no. which sometimes happens. It's sort of yeah. a, a glitch in the system. And so the person who chose it for book club said, if you've got any other books by him, and he picked up A Letter to the Sky, and he read that and loved it, and he wrote a review for the newsletter, because he said it's not a book that he would have picked up himself. It was just sort of mm. by chance, and he became absolutely gripped by it. And so I, when he returned it, I put Letter to the Sky on the shelves so that because I knew that people would come in after reading the review in the newsletter, and somebody did, and they just brought it back today, and they said, "Oh, I said, how did you go with that?" And she said, "It was absolutely gripping." Oh, well, so, you go. there you go, yeah. high praise. Yeah. Now I have the book, The Book Collector, by Tony Ear, who is the chairman of the Athenaeum Library, and it's it's and autobiography but it's an autobiography of his life through books and so he um, talks about his his childhood and how he developed his love of reading and Tony actually has a very large book collection and one of the things he loves to do is to go through to secondhand books and hunt out first editions and he actually gave a talk once um, at some event we had for the library and he was talking about how it's actually quite an affordable hobby to have. You can actually, if you're persistent enough, you can find first editions that are at a reasonable price. And um, like he, he's not a millionaire or anything. He's not buying, he's just buying books that, he concentrates on New Zealand books, but um, first edition New Zealand books, well, they, they can be rare because only so many were published. But you know he he's hunted down a considerable amount, and um, this got a bit of a buzz when it came out. Um, he was interviewed on national radio, and it got some very nice reviews. And um, contained in it is a, a very nice comment about the Athenaeum. 
Oh, so mm. why why isn't he on this show, Tony? Well, he watch the space. He can do another mm. a reading from this book. Yes, possibly we can have him in the, um, later oh. on. Tom Brown's School Days was the first I ever owned in this collection of over three hundred, redesigned and reissued as the Collins New Classic series in the nineteen fifties. The pen and ink drawing on the dust jacket depicted the headmaster, Doctor Arnold, with a handkerchief over his nose to contain the horrid stink from chemical experiments emanating from Madman Martin's study. As an 11-year-old boy, it was a story I could relate to, despite it being set in a 19th century English boarding school. Tony is a really great mm, writer. He is. He is. And this is, I'm not going to get this out today, but I do want to get it out the next time, if you can remember that. And it's got beautiful photos mm. as well. Um Really well, wonderful. As I said, he, he talked a little bit about his life as a book collector at, at um, an event we had at the Athenaeum, and Fiona Farrell was there. And afterwards, she said to Tony, Tony, you should write this up. Do you have the makings of a book there? And, and that was, it did become a book. So um, it, it was this book was born in the Athenaeum. Uh, and do you know, I just love it. I love it. Back in town, Dean Harvard's fascinating second-hand bookshop, Dead Souls, mm. which you all know, named after the Nikolai Gogol novel, hangs out in the down at Hill Prince's Street, south of Stafford Street. Some derelict heritage buildings are a menacing influence on the streetscape. Don't worry, Tony, because one's being pulled down brick by brick as we talk. <laughs> no, that is wonderful. Mm, yes. Yeah. Now, I have the latest Michael Connolly. It's Resurrection Walk, and it's a Lincoln lawyer thriller, but it also includes um, his half-brother, who is Detective Harry Bosch. And Harry's retired, and he's actually undergoing cancer treatment, and he's he's working as um, Mickey Hallier's, um his driver. And so they're, they're working together because, of course, they're half-brothers. And a woman who was in prison for killing her husband, who is a sheriff's deputy, enlists uh, Mickey Hallier to take her case because she insists that she wasn't guilty. Now, Harry Bosch, he's not sure if he actually wants to be part of this because, of course, he's an ex-cop, and he doesn't really know if he wants to be involved in a case involving a cop killer. But uh, of course, she is adamant. She's been in, she's been imprisoned for four years, and she's adamant that she didn't do it. And as Bosch um, digs a bit deeper, he starts to feel that actually she probably is correct. But of course, um, the sheriff's department that her husband was a part of has um, has drawn together, and getting the truth out of them is a difficult job. But um, Mickey Hallier, the Lincoln lawyer, is on the case and determined to succeed. Good on you. Yeah. Now I've got the latest Paul Cleave as well, his favourite graves. Now this starts with an abduction of a teenager and he does something quite unusual. He tells us who the abductor is right at the start and I was thinking, when I read, it was a pretty chilling thing, and when I read, I thought that well, that 
oh, that's a pretty bold move for his, him to make. Are, are we going to, as we read the book, know who the who the person is and everybody else is hunting to, f- to find the clues to relate his identity? But then he then has it so that the person who abducted the teenager does it in such a way that it's pretty obvious that he that this person did it. So when we know who the who the person the doctor is, but also the law enforcement people also know. So we 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 aren't we the reader are not privy to a big secret that nobody else is, which would have mm. been interesting. But this is just as interesting. And the th- the thing is, the guy has a has. His um, identity is known, but he's taken this boy to a remote place, and and so for the for it to be for him to be found and stopped is no easy thing. And uh, the person who's in charge of the case, um, the def- deputy um, sheriff Cohen, has got problem other problems of his own. His father has dementia, and he was sent to an old people's home which he then accidentally burnt down. And he, so he's being sued by the families whose, whose parents died in the fire and he's about to lose lose everything financially. He um, His son is behaving badly. He's bullying children at school and it looks like he might be involved in some way in the, the boy, Lucas Connor, who's abducted. He might have been bullying him. So it just um, is a bad situation, and there's a reward money. There's reward money put on offer, and so the sheriff suddenly becomes very invested in solving this case, so he can get the reward money and save. Because he's about to be evicted from his house, things are really dire, and so he he desperately needs the money. So the part of the thing is, what will he do to get the money, and will that um, mean that he? Um, sacrifices his um, his professional scruples. Now this is Paul Cleave, and um, some of it is pretty gruesome, which uh, which people love. <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, it's also it's set in America because he, he says at the back some stories just can't, you can't set them in Christchurch; they they have to be set in America. Now I have a book called The Dictionary People and it's about the writing of the Oxford English Dictionary by Silver, Silver, Sarah Ogilvie. Ogilvie? That's fine. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Carry on. And, of course, when the Oxford um, Dictionary was, was done, uh, compiled, they had, they it's not something that's like a, a bunch of scholars could have done because... They what they've tried to do with every with all the words in it is find um, how how the meaning of the words has changed over time, and so they they want people to read and pick out words and um, get quotes, including the words, and go back as far back as they can to the very first publication where uh, a word appears, and so that they have um, the first time it appears in print and the way it's used, and then possibly the next time it appears in print with a slightly different um, usage. Mm. So that's what it's tracing. And so they had had the assistance of, um, they actually put out a, a 
a request for anybody to to get to send them words, and they they told people to make these cards um, six six inches by four inches, and to write write the word, and then write to where the um, the page number and what what they got the quote from, and then the quote, and to send it to them, and then they um, compiled and um, you know got it into order, and. Who the people that were contributed, some of them were known because when, and it's such a big thing, the Oxford Dictionary, that it was published, they started with A and it was published in sections. And the most, the guy who was editor for the longest period, um, Murray, um, he was editor for 36 years and he um, died um, while compiling the letter T. And but he was actually the third editor of the Enterprise, and there's been one since. And they used to, when they published it, they would thank people for their help. But they tended to thank um, notable people or um, yeah, people of reputation. And so the the less people with less reputation got overpassed. And Sarah used to work there, and she was down in the basement one day, and she opened randomly opened a box and found Murray's address book and that sent her on a quest to find these people and in fact uh, as a part of interest one of the people involved was Thomas Hocken who um, was no, his book Thomas collection Hocken. yes mm. his book collection um, became the Hocken collection yeah. and he actually assisted an Australian man who was um, sending Australian words and he and Hocken sent his English sorry his New Zealand words to this Australian who then sent it to Murray. So that's why Hocken didn't really appear as a as a thanked a named person. But um how she's organized this, she's done it alphabetically. So you start off with um A for archaeologist and you go through um T for tramps the Sunday and N is for New Zealanders. Nice. So there were quite a few New Zealanders yeah. who were involved, and that's a, this is the sort of book that I love, quirky yeah. facts about people. It sounds people. absolutely, yeah, fabulous. Gosh, we're, yeah. we've run out of You've time. You've done very well. well. Okay, on that note, say goodbye, Christine. Happy reading, everyone. Happy reading, everyone. Nothing can replace the pleasure of turning the pages of the printed book. Wireless Books on Otago Access Radio explores our city's rich literary heritage, talking with people who are passionate about the printed word and celebrating the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute's fascinating local history. Tune in every second Saturday at midday for reviews and discussion about books old and new. Wireless Books on 105.4 FM, 1575 AM and live in podcast from www.oar.org.nz. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.